It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. What is the One China policy? Why was this policy created? And how does it impact the United States' relationship with China? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. So, if you've been keeping up with the news, on any given day, there is an update on China. From its spy balloon that flew across the United States a couple weeks ago, to its influence on TikTok, to the future of AI. But something that we don't often hear about is the One China policy, a piece of legislation established in 1979 under the Carter administration, where the United States pivoted their diplomatic recognition from the Republic of China to the People's Republic of China. It has been 44 years since this policy was created, and yet it's still rarely discussed. So how has the One China policy evolved? What is the future of this policy and how does it impact Taiwan? Here to talk me through all of this and more is former faculty fellow in national security at the United States Department of Defense, Dr. Michael Beckley. Mike, what's going on? Hey, great to be with you. Thanks so much for coming on. I, I, this is, you know, the, we've been talking about China a lot as of late, so I'm glad we're covering this topic because almost 45 years ago, we stopped recognizing China as the Republic of China, started recognizing it as the People's Republic of China. Break that all down for me. What is the One China policy? Well, the One China policy, the United States acknowledges that People both on the mainland and in Taiwan think there's one China and Taiwan is a part of that. But the word acknowledge is, is really loaded. It's like, yeah, I acknowledge that you think that. It doesn't necessarily mean that I agree with you. And at the same time, the United States has insisted on a peaceful resolution of the issue. So if Taiwan and the mainland were to reunite in a friendly way, the United States ostensibly would not have a problem with that. But it's the fact that the mainland looks set on trying to conquer Taiwan itself. That is the main problem. So I want to I want to delve into that a little bit more because, you know, we have a lot riding on Taiwan. So why is Taiwan so important to the U.S.? Why and and why was this established, by the way? Let's cover that as well. Yeah. So you have to go back to the Cold War. So, you know, obviously, when when the Chinese communists win the Chinese Civil War, the the nationalist government, which used to be the government of all of China, flees to Taiwan and the United States ends up backing um, uh, the the nationalist government against the, the communists to contain them. And things get complicated basically in the second half of the Cold War, where the U.S. and mainland China decide to gang up on the Soviet Union. And so that's why the United States didn't want to fully abandon Taiwan, but you also had to make nice with the mainland Chinese. And so that's what leads to this sort of convoluted compromise where the United States acknowledges that both sides think there's one China, um, but it continues to do business with the Taiwanese sort of on the down low um, as a way to maintain that as a bastion against uh, the Chinese Communist Party. Mm. You mentioned the Cold War. How did the policy impact the United States at that time? And how has that evolved fast forwarding now to 2023? It, it it certainly complicated U.S. relations with with Beijing because Beijing just wanted the United States to sell out Taiwan completely. And um, the United States was reluctant to that, even when American presidents like President Nixon said, OK, in my second term, I will uh, you know, remove our commitment to Taiwan. 
the Chinese had to learn that, you know, in divided government, things can change pretty quickly. And so the U.S. Congress has stepped in at various points to uh, continue a commitment there. And so it's just been always a sticking point between the United States and China. Both sides were willing to tamp that down when the Soviet Union was still around. But ever since the demise of the Soviet Union, this issue has simmered up. And a, a second complicating factor is just that when Taiwan became a democracy, suddenly that means the United States feels a greater moral commitment because you can't let the only Chinese democracy in the world just be crushed by the Chinese Communist Party. Mm, I see. Right. So, um, you know, go. let's go back to 1951. Can you walk me through the Mutual Defense Treaty and what role that played in everything? Yeah, that actually gets signed in 1954. But I, I think you could you could date America's commitment to Taiwan to 1950 when the Korean War breaks out, because um, the United States was very concerned that basically communist forces were going to be on the march everywhere. And so in addition to intervening in Korea, the United States put a big part of its navy in the in the Taiwan Strait, basically to prevent the Chinese communists from taking advantage of the chaos to launch an invasion of Taiwan. And then over time, you know, the United States just had an incentive to back the government on Taiwan. I don't think American policymakers necessarily wanted a full-fledged alliance, but in 1954, China started launching artillery shells on these small offshore islands that are controlled by the government on Taiwan. They did that because they were trying to scare the Americans away from committing to Taiwan. It had the exact opposite effect. And the Americans said, oh, hey, now that the communists are on the march, we have to sign this alliance treaty. And so they ultimately signed the same kind of alliance treaty basically that exists between the United States and Japan, the United States and the Philippines, the United States and South Korea. The U.S. had that for a while from 1954 um, until the late 1970s with Taiwan. Right. Now, why is this so complicated? What what does Taiwan mean to China and what does Taiwan mean to the United States? Well, for China, it's it's a renegade province. You know, they consider it part of their country. It'd be like if Texas was somehow separated and had this rival government that had a different regime type, you know, not an authoritarian regime, but a democratic regime. And so not only is it an issue of territorial integrity for China, you know, making China whole again, it's also it's it's loaded with historical baggage because Taiwan was taken away from China in the late 19th century by Japan and was ruled as a Japanese colony all the way up until 1945, uh, the, until the Americans, you know, boot the Japanese out. And uh, technically, according to agreements, you know, that Taiwan was going to be handed back to China. And it was. But then you have the Chinese Civil War and the communists kick out the existing government of China, which then has to flee to Taiwan. So that now you have this separation. So there's, you know, for the Chinese, it's not just about making China whole again. It's also about recovering from what they call the century of humiliation, which is this period from the mid 19th century up until 1949, where China just gets ripped apart by imperialist powers. And so the idea that, you know, we have to win the Chinese Civil War once and for all, we have to bring our country finally back together. This is why Xi Jinping, the Chinese chairman always talks about the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation and attaches that specifically to reincorporating Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And then what about the United States? I mean, we we have spoken in support with Taiwan. Uh, how does it maintain, how does U.S. maintain its status as a strong ally of Taiwan? Well, by selling Taiwan lots of arms, first of all. So, you know, if you look at Taiwan's military, it's extremely advanced. And a lot of that is, you know, the Taiwanese are flying American F-16s and they're using Abrams tanks and um, uh, lots of advanced American missiles. So part of it is just arming Taiwan so that it has the ability to defend itself. It's also just about 
uh, sort of on the sly cultivating and promoting Taiwanese um, recognition around the world. So trying to get Taiwan recognized in international organizations and trying to find ways to continue to do all of the things you would do with a sovereign country without the sort of technicality of calling it um, a country. So basically trying to have all of the benefits without crossing that specific red line that might cause a uh, Chinese, um, you know, violent response. Mm -hmm. And why is that so important to the U.S.? I, I think, you know, set aside, you, you can argue for moral reasons. You know, you have 23 million people on Taiwan that definitely do not want to go back with the mainland. But even if you set that aside, I think Taiwan is pound for pound the most strategically important place in the world. So it sits Bingo. at the epicenter of the East and South China Seas, which are at the epicenter of where the Pacific and the Indian Ocean meet. So something like 40 to 50% of world trade passes through these waters. There's also just the idea of China is a potential rising peer competitor, the main rival to the United States. And if, if you are being sort of Machiavellian, you want to keep your rival down. And there's no better way to do that than to keep it permanently territorially dismembered, focused on its own um, its own backyard rather than being able to project power internationally. You also have alliance credibility concerns. So because the United States has a commitment, especially now that President Biden has said the U.S. would defend Taiwan, if the United States were just to not lift a finger in Taiwan's defense, other allies around the world would have to wonder, well, what, what does the security treaty with the United States really mean if the U.S. can just sell us out if it looks like the going is getting tough? So there's diplomatic, moral, strategic, and then you could add on the economic concerns, just that Taiwan is a high technology power. Um, it's a major trader. It's it's a large economy for a relatively small country. Um, and so there's just, you know, across the board, there are there are strong American interests in defending Taiwan. Absolutely. I'm glad that you broke that all down. All right. We've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Talk to me about the Taiwan Relations Act and why that was passed. Yeah, so um, starting in the early 1970s, you have you have Nixon going to to China. Um, you know, the week that changed the world, as he said, and basically the United States and China becoming quasi allies to gang up on the Soviet Union. Now, a major sticking point in that was obviously the Taiwan issue. The Chinese under Mao expected the United States to just abandon. Taiwan completely. And so the Nixon administration had to kind of figure out a way to recruit China as an ally while not completely selling out the Taiwanese. Um, and as it turns out, you know, uh, the United States eventually switches its recognition to mainland China, starts calling mainland China, the government there, China, um, and, uh, you know, uh, is it tears up its alliance treaty with with the Taiwanese. And so the U.S. Congress actually said, OK, we're going too far here. We cannot just completely sell out the Taiwanese. And so they passed the Taiwan Relations Act with a veto uh, proof majority, essentially, um, which forces the then Carter administration in the late 1970s to to sign it. And that basically reiterates the American interest in a peaceful resolution of the Taiwan issue. It also makes it American law that the United States has to provide Taiwan 
with weapons of a defensive nature that would basically allow it to defend itself. It doesn't say the United States has to come in guns blazing to defend Taiwan to the death, but it does say the United States has to sell arms and also maintain U.S. capacity to be able to intervene um, in, in a major way to defend Taiwan. So it was, it was a major signal of intent. And for the Chinese, they were basically apoplectic about this because they thought they'd crafted a deal with the American presidents that you know the U.S. would essentially uh, give up its commitment to Taiwan, and then the U.S. Congress steps in and passes this uh, landmark piece of legislation. Right, you know, listening to you talk, uh, Mike, it, it does kind of remind you of what's going on right now between Russia and Ukraine, uh, albeit not the same situation. But what are your thoughts on that war and our involvement in that, and what our role could look like if China does try to invade Taiwan? Yeah, I mean, I think there, there there are major differences. So the U.S. commitment to Taiwan has been much longer standing, um, and I think much more solid than what the U.S. commitment to Ukraine was prior to Russia's invasion. You have the Taiwan Relations Act that makes it U.S. law to sell arms and maintain the U.S. capacity to intervene. You had President Biden saying the United States just would, uh, you know, intervene. Um, that's not something the U.S. would uh, has committed to do on Ukraine's behalf, but. So there are clear differences. I also think there there are just stronger interests for the United States and Taiwan. All of that said, I, I tend to see these conflicts as linked. I mean, you've seen Putin and, and Xi Jinping, you know, having their bromance and getting together and, and forming this no limits partnership. And you basically have these two autocratic powers fighting with their backs to each other in East Asia and in Europe. And I see it as part of one larger sort of offensive. And so, you know, there's this debate, should the United States be um, you know, reducing support for Ukraine to focus more on Taiwan, I actually think that would be horribly mistaken because what happens in Europe affects the balance of power in Asia and vice versa. Mm. You know, you kind of went into it a little bit with Congress um, and, you know, their legislators thoughts about the one China policy. Do you think it's likely that this policy could ever be reversed at this point? The the one China policy, uh, you know, it's it's. <laughs> I don't think it's completely out of the question simply because you you have more and more support on, especially on Capitol Hill, to really start treating Taiwan more as just a full-fledged independent country. So under the Trump administration, you had um, this the Taiwan Travel Act, which basically uh, opened up the floodgates for high-level American government officials to go over to Taiwan and meet with Taiwanese uh, government officials before it had to be much more on the download, you know, kind of serendipitous meetings up. Oh, we happen to run into each other in an airport or something like that. But now it's like you have all these congressional delegations going over. We saw with Nancy Pelosi, most importantly, you know, last summer. And so, to, you know, from a Chinese perspective, I think understandably so, this looks like a slippery slope of just propping up uh, Taiwan's diplomatic status all the way right up to the brink of just full-fledged uh, uh, recognition. Now, I, I think at the end of the day, the United States uh, doesn't want to uh, fully go to, to, to push Taiwan towards independence because that would be a red line for China. But it's just getting to the point where it's basically in all but name. And so I could see a situation where where it actually does happen. Mm. You know, I'm curious to ask you, um, you know, you're the author of Unrivaled, Why America Will Remain the World's Sole Superpower. Obviously, when we talk about world superpowers, China is in that conversation because of how much, you know, we depend on them for certain things like technology and manufacturing. Why do you think America will remain the world's sole superpower? 
I think the two main reasons are one, a really big lead. And second, um, the United States has the best prospects to, to grow its economy and therefore its military and diplomatic power. So in terms of the lead, even despite China's rapid growth, if you just look at who has more wealth, the United States has something like three to four times China's total wealth. China has a big GDP, a big economy, but a lot of that is just because it has a big population, which means it also has a lot of mouths to feed, a lot of stuff to clean up, a lot of people to police, and all of those costs of having to run and manage a giant population suck away a lot of China's bottom line um, wealth. And, and militarily, you know, China is very powerful, very close to its shores. So like in a Taiwan war, this is why there's there's a number of reports saying the United States could even lose a war over Taiwan, but that's because China has home field advantage. But if you go anywhere beyond 500 miles from the Chinese coastline, it's not really a competitive battle. The United States has something like five to 10 times China's what we call power projection capability, the bases, the big aircraft carriers, the series of allies that you need to really project and be a global military power. So China is clearly the second most powerful country in the world. It's a major threat to many U.S. interests. But are, is it on par with the United States as a superpower? I don't think it's there yet. And then if you look forward, the United States just has better prospects, I think, to grow off into the future for demographic reasons, institutional reasons, and, and geographic reasons. Well, that's good news, Mike. <laughs> uh, you know, the the one China policy has subsequently been reaffirmed by every new incoming U.S. administration. Do you think that's because of those um, those reasons you cited earlier with, you know, how important Taiwan is to us, the stability of the Taiwan Strait, things like that? Yeah, well, so I think, you know, the, the one China policy is to sort of, uh, you know, uh, mollify Beijing, but the insistence on the peaceful resolution of the Taiwan issue, the uh, arms sales to Taiwan, the shows of diplomatic support are all in sort of recognition that, you know, this this is an important nation to support for all those, you know, it's the unsinkable aircraft carrier in Asia. It's a linchpin of global supply chains, and it's the only Chinese uh, democracy and is in quite successful one. It's one of the most democratic countries in the world. So for all these reasons, um, you know, the United States has really bound itself quite intimately with the Taiwanese. Mm. Why do you think it's important for people to understand all of this? You know what? I, I just think about voting. You know, it, there are so many issues that you are on the ballot that you're like, all right, I might want this person or this person to represent our country because of this. Um, why care about this? I mean, th this to me is very important. So that's why I asked this question. Yeah, I, I think it's totally understandable for for Americans. You know, we're blessed that we're separated from other very powerful countries by two big oceans. You know, really, all the other great powers are packed together in Europe and Asia, and we're sort of over here in the Western Hemisphere. And so, there's throughout American history, there's been this perception that you know what happens over there won't really affect us very much. If it does, we can kind of wait till the last minute and then sort of get our act together later. I think it was Churchill that said, "You can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after exhausting all the other." possibilities. So I can totally understand why, you know, we're much more focused on our domestic politics. But I think as we learned in both world wars, as we learned in the Cold War, as we learned after 9-11, you know, the rest of the world will reach out and touch us in, in, in sometimes quite violent ways. And what happens on the other side of the world can have direct effects on our livelihoods, on our safety. And this, we're, I mean, we're talking about a potential a conflict or war scenario against the most powerful, second most powerful country in the world for, and this really is kind of the the epicenter of the broader U.S.-China 
uh, rivalry, which has tremendous ramifications for the state of the global economy and for American security. So I think, you know, it behooves us to pay very close attention to political developments in Taiwan, the, the cross state of cross-strait relations, and the ability of the United States to actually stand up and defend Taiwan. Because if you think that containing China is an important interest of the United States, then you want to pick your spots. And Taiwan would be the ideal place because it's the it, you can nip the problem in the bud. You can prevent further Chinese expansion. We learned that in World War II, not to let dictators just run rampant across their regions. And so this would be the ideal place to make a stand. And so we have to pay close attention. Mm -hmm. you, your research is so interesting. You focus on U.S.-China competition, long-term trends in the U.S.-China power balance, U.S. alliances and grand strategy. Um, you're also an associate professor at Tufts. So is there something that your students typically ask you or something that might, you know, you're surprised that they don't know that our listeners could could gain information from? Yeah, I mean, I I think they, first of all, a lot of the things we've just talked about, sort of the, the back and forth, like how, what exactly is American policy towards Taiwan? Uh, why does China care so much about Taiwan? In fact, I think I would emphasize that because for some people, they see this as um, sort of a, a minor territorial dispute or something like that. I think it's important to understand that this is ingrained in the Chinese psyche, that there are emotional attachments and a ton of historical baggage that go into this. And so we cannot assume that the leadership in Beijing is going to do sort of a simple cost benefit analysis, um, you know, or, you know, I see a lot of people thinking of Xi Jinping as if he's some kind of hedge fund manager that, oh, he cares too much about the economy, he would never risk a major conflict, etc. I think we need to look at him as a nationalist, as a dictator of an autocratic regime that has um, a historical narrative, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, their claim to fame is they're the ones that kind of put China back together again. And this would be like the 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 uh, capstone on on that mission. And Xi Jinping himself seems to have attached his legacy, his historical legacy to doing this. So we can't just look at this in, in pure sort of cost benefit analysis terms. This is very much a vital uh, emotional interest for for China. Um, and that's what makes it so dangerous because um, it just makes it much harder to deter Beijing going forward. Wow. That was such a great breakdown because it also and, and not to compare these two things again. But, you know, you think about Vladimir Putin and some things don't make sense, like why he won't let go. But they are they're dictators and egos are involved. And to your point, there's a lot more baggage over the course of many years that might be important to them where, you know, they're they're not thinking as logically always. Yeah, I mean, I, there's you have to understand, like for China, they 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 viewed China as kind of the center of, of human civilization as the dominant power for centuries and centuries. And then they had this horrible century of humiliation where they were essentially dismembered by Europeans and the Japanese. And the Chinese Communist Party said, we will never let that happen again. And that's why you, the Chinese people, should support us in perpetuity and why we're not going to have elections, because we are the ones that can hold this great country together. We're the ones that can or allow China to stand up. And so the CCP has to defend that narrative. That is their that is sort of their basic platform. And I think the second issue that you just raised is dictators, you know, they don't think like you and I. I think anyone that is constantly told yes and gets their way all the time, that's just like psychologically mm. um, discombobulating. To think of any pop star, any sports star, or certainly any dictator, you know, it's generally not good for their self-awareness and sort of introspection. And so I think we saw that play out catastrophically with Putin, who apparently spent the COVID lockdowns next to statues of Catherine the Great and thinking about his place in in, in Russia's history. And I just worry that, you know, based on the things that Xi Jinping has been saying 
about how China needs to be rejuvenated and brought back together again, and how it's not this Taiwan problem is not a problem that can be passed down generation to generation. Those are his words. That that just seems very ominous, especially as we've seen that play out uh, in Russia and Ukraine. Absolutely. Uh, Mike, last question I have for you. What do you think is the most important thing to know about one China policy, our future, things like that? I think the most important thing to know is is to not get bogged down in the in all the different acts and and the the various communiques and the the sort of legalistic uh, wording that the U.S. has used to kind of finagle its policy and just look at sort of the the baseline of what's going on here. You know, China believes this is part of their territory. The United States has an interest in containing Chinese aggressive expansion, in protecting a fellow democratic regime in protecting a key linchpin of global supply chains um, and and at the end of the day just making sure that the the sea lanes of east asia that we rely so much on are are safe and so it it, regardless of of who says what are the specific policies there are just core interests here this is a clear conflict of interest between the two most powerful countries in the world and so it's just it's not an issue that can be wished away or can be you know papered over with memoranda of understanding this is a fundamental clash um, and it therefore requires you to build up the the enforcement mechanism, the military power, the economic wherewithal and the alliances to enforce your end of the bargain. Such a great way to wrap it up. You put it so simply. This is why you're an amazing professor. Look at that. Uh, among other things, I know. Dr. Michael Beckley, everyone. Mike, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much, Abby. It's really great to be here. class, these are my office hours, and here are some top takeaways about the One China policy. Number one, about 40 to 50% of world trade passes through China, so it behooves us to know their relationships. Taiwan is important to the U.S. for many reasons, and that's why the United States' approach to Taiwan has remained consistent across decades and administrations. Number two, because of the Taiwan Relations Act, the U.S. is required to step in and provide aid to Taiwan in the event of a conflict with China. Which brings us to number three. Xi Jinping credits the Communist Party with the rejuvenation of China and essentially putting China back on the map, which is part of the reason why Taiwan is so important to China and why we should pay attention to the future of this policy. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast on the One China Policy. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.